Welcome to the Freedom House Church Weekend Message. Today, you'll be hearing an exciting message from a communicator on our teaching team. Whether you're just waking up, on your way to work, or going for a relaxing evening walk, we know this message will equip you to experience Christ's freedom today and every day. So enjoy. What's up, Freedom House? Y'all look wonderful today. Hey, let's give it up one more time for all those that got baptized. Fantastic. Isn't that exciting? So cool. I love, this is my favorite day. And, um, and it's also my favorite day because my wife is with me today. My beautiful, stand up, sweetheart. My beautiful wife is with me. <clears throat> we normally, probably four times a year, do we get to go to the same campus on the same day. So I'm excited that you decided to spend a few hours with your husband. And so I'll reward you later. All right, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that just slipped out. I also want to welcome all of our live streamers, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Virginia, Peru, California, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Give it up for all of our live streamers. So glad to have you. I also have the honor today of introducing our guest speaker. Um, so our church, almost 19 years old, when we started the church, one of the things that we did right away is we created an external board to not just help us manage the church, but also manage Penny and I. And so their responsibility is for our relationship, um, for our family. Um, they're the ones that deserve uh, they. They determine, sorry, they determine our compensation, all of that. I have an internal board and an external board. And what I like to do every year is I like to have some folks from our external board come so you can meet them, greet them, get to know them a little bit better. And Pastor Gerald Brooks has been uh, in our lives for over 15 years. Um, he has roundtables all over the nation. He ministers to over 5,000 pastors worldwide. Um, he's on John Maxwell's board. Um, he has really spoken into our lives from a distance for a very, very long time. But now, up close and personal, he's really helped us become the pastors that we want to be, the church that we want to be, and also challenge us to continue to grow. And so, um, I want you to get up on your feet. I want you to give a big, warm Freedom House Church welcome. Come on, give it up for Pastor Gerald Brooks. Thank you, Pastor. if I was supposed to dance, if it kept going. It is on. Hey, uh, it is such a, a treat to be here. It is, it is such a joy 
uh, to be here, to see the baptisms, to just see people make those profound moments of decision for Christ. I'm just telling you all across the nation to see churches back doing what God asked them to do. Uh, we are just so thrilled. Well, what we're going to do, because I want to redeem the time, is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the Word of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be in this great church with these great leaders, uh, this great congregation, to see people making decisions for you, testifying of those decisions. Lord, what an honor. I thank you, Father, that we as Christians never take for granted these moments, the very things that cause heaven to celebrate should always cause us great joy. And so, Lord, I'm grateful to be here today. Help me, Lord, as I minister. Lord, I'm out on my own here. I don't know the people in this room, but you know all of them. And today, Lord, I pray that somehow you're going to unlock the unique combination of each of their hearts to help them to take another step in their journey with you in Jesus' name. Thank you for blessing them. Thank you for making the word of God personal and powerful. Thank you that when it's all said and done, you're going to help each one of us be more like Jesus than ever before. That is always our prayer in Jesus' name. We all agree together saying, you know, you guys have started a series on miracles. If I were to try to illustrate the impact and the thoughts that Jesus wants to convey about miracles, I would take you to Mark chapter 5. If you know anything about the book of Mark, you know that Mark wrote his uh, gospel in a very distinct way, that in each one of the chapters, he always takes two stories and he weaves them together, that it's sort of like this double header that gets pinched together, and he says, hey, I want you to begin to understand it. Sometimes it's truths that are opposite from each other, Sometimes it's the same truth, but trying to reveal multiple sides of that truth. But in Mark chapter 5, you see Jesus as he lands his boat, and there is a man in verse 22 who comes to him. His name is Jairus. He is a ruler of the synagogue. He is very well known. He is very well respected. He is an individual that according to the culture of that day, he would be up and in. He would be one of those people at the very top of the organization chart. But if you go down to verse 25, you read about another individual, and that is a, with a woman with an issue of blood. We're not even told her name, and yet she is going to be involved in the story. But in these two individuals, God's trying to communicate something about miracles. And what he's trying to say is sometimes in our lives, we think people who are up and in have a better shot of getting a miracle than people who are down and out. We think the well-known have a better shot than the unknown. But what God was doing in Mark chapter 5 was he was saying, it doesn't matter whether you're on the top of the organizational chart or you're on the bottom of the organizational chart. Whether everybody knows you like Jairus or no one knows you like the woman with the issue of blood. Whether your problem is a big one that everyone in the community knows or your problem is a personal one that nobody knows, God says, I have a miracle for you. And what God was communicating is there's no place on the organizational chart he is going to fail to minister to the known, to the unknown, the people who've got it together, the people who have nothing together, the people who seem to be the ones who have the inside track and the people who seem to not even know where the track is. And Mark chapter 5 is God showing that miracles happen to anyone who will pursue him. Now, that being said, what I want to do is I want to focus on a quality that was involved with both Jairus and the unknown lady, and that is that every miracle has qualities to it. In both of their occasions, I could take you through Scripture, and I could show you that one of the things that was needed for them to have a miracle is they had to have hope. So let me just start right here. God created you, God created me to be people of hope. God created you to be a person who has hope. God created me to be an individual who has hope. 
In Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, it puts it like this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What is God saying? I made you to be a hopeful person. And when you don't have hope, something about your life will not work. And here's what I know from pastoring 43 years. Most of the people in this room do not have a faith problem. If I were to ask this question, do you believe that Jesus heals? Hands would go up. Do you believe that Jesus provides? Hands would go up. Do you believe that Jesus can care and deliver? Hands would go up. But then if I were to ask people this question, do you believe that God's going to heal you? Well, you know what? I'm not sure. My circumstance, my situation, I've been dealing with this a long time. I've been faced with this. I've been confronted. Do you believe that God's going to bless your career? Well, I have some career obstacles in front of me, and I'm not sure how we're going to get through them. Well, do you believe God's going to care for your family? You know, our family's a little bit dysfunction. See, most people don't have a faith problem. They have a hope problem. And what faith is, you believe that God can, but hope is when you believe God will do it for you. And so for most people, they have this hope issue, and they've got to come to terms with it. Uh, Years ago, it was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, we had finished our services, which there's a lot of them, and I had gone home, and I was tired, and when you're tired, you just want to relax and do something you enjoy doing. Well, what I enjoy doing is I enjoy reading, and so I looked for something to read. In the mail, we had received a magazine, and, and the magazine uh, was just one they were trying to get us to purchase, so I was just thumbing through it, and there was an article in it, I wish that I could prescribe hope. And I I looked at it, my first instinct was to say this, uh, maybe this was written by a Christian. So as I began to look into the article, I began to realize this was not a Christian article. In fact, it was written by a surgeon who had been a surgeon for decades. And in there, it had, I wished I could prescribe hope. And what he started doing was he would tell story after story of individuals that he did surgery on. And so he'd say, my day would begin this. I'd have two people who had the exact same problem. They had the exact same prognosis, diagnosis. They had the exact same thing. But what happened was, he said, I would go into the pre-consult before we'd have the surgery. I would tell talk to them, and I would say, this is what the surgery entails. I would give the exact same speech. One of them would do well. One of them would not do well. One of them would live. One of them would not live. And he said, for decades, I was confused. Why is it that two people who had the exact same problem, exact same surgery, one excels, one does not, one lives, and one does not, and then it started hitting me? I would do those pre-consults, and one of them, the person would say this, you know what, doctor, I know this is a really, really challenging surgery. I know there's a lot of risk to it, but I want to tell you, I'm not finished with my life. I've got some things that I want to do. There's some things that I want to accomplish. I know this isn't going to be easy, but I'm coming through this. And he said, I'll do the exact same surgery on someone else. And they'll say, you know what? I know this is a tough surgery. I'm really concerned. I'm not sure I'm going to do well. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. He says, medically, I could prove we did the exact same thing. One lives, one dies, one excels, one fails. And he said it came down to one thing. Whoever had the hopeful outlook going in did the best. Now, What I'm saying to you is this. He wasn't writing as a Christian. He wasn't preaching on a Sunday morning. He was just putting forth his observation of being a doctor. And he says, if I could write a prescription before surgery and say, I want to give you hope, take hope three times a day, seven days in a row before we have this surgery, he says, I know that person has a better chance of doing well. Some of you uh, know Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is acquaintance of mine, but his father, John, was a dear friend of mine. 
Now, John was married to Dodie. That's Joel's mom. And when John was alive, they used to do a conference, and they would do it over Thanksgiving week. Pastors and leaders would come in from all around the nation. It would always be packed. At one of these particular events, uh, Dodie's sitting on the front row, and she just gets up in the middle of the service and says, I have to go to the ladies' room. She goes, and the service is going on, but, but some of the daughters and daughters-in-law began to notice that she didn't come back. Well, they started looking around, and one of, one of them got up and went to the back, and they walked into the ladies' room, and Dodie was laying on the floor, and she was hemorrhaging. They immediately called uh, one of Dodie's sons, who happens to be a medical doctor, who also happens to be a surgeon. And he ran back there, and he sees his mom bleeding down there. He immediately does some things. They're calling the ambulance. Uh, They get her in the ambulance. They take her to the hospital. She's unconscious. She's lost so much blood. They start giving her blood. They start running tests. As they run the tests, they figure out that she has an aggressive form of cancer. It's just an aggressive form. The idea was that when she woke up, it would be the son that's the doctor that would tell her what they had discovered. But this is his mom. And as a doctor, he knew what the prognosis was, that in all likelihood, she would not live. And so when she woke up, He was there, and and he tried to tell her, but he just broke into tears, and he had to leave. Then one of the other kids stepped up and said, Mom, they found this cancer in you, and it doesn't look real promising. Well, Dodie, being the mom, you know, tried to calm everyone else down, but for the next couple of days, they kept her in the hospital. They were running all these tests, and then... Dodie looks at her son, who's the doctor, about the third day and says, I need you to take me home. Well, in his mind, he thought the mom was just giving up. He said, I need to go home. He said, Mom, we we can do things here. Don't give up. She says, I'm not giving up. He said, I will participate in everything that you say I need to participate in. If you say I need to be at the hospital to take a test, do medication or some kind of treatment, I will be here, but I cannot stay here. He said, well, Mom, it would be best for you to be here. said, no, I want to go home. And then he turned to one of the daughters and said, I want you to go. And she started giving these lists, pictures of me riding horses, pictures of the grandkids and all of this. And the son's looking, pleading uh, with his mom, no, just stay here. And she said, sweetheart, you don't understand something. Everything in this room says I'm going to die. I want to go home. I want to be surrounded by pictures of my horses and grandkids. Let me just insert to those of you that are kids, there reaches a day when your parents just want to see their grandkids. Has nothing to do with you. Those are the pictures that you want. And so she wanted all the pictures of the grandkids there. She wanted all of that. And and they said, why do you want that? She said, I need to see my future. I need to see me riding the horses. I need to see me with the grandkids. I need to see that I'm out there. This is what I'm going to do. Dodie ended up getting healed, and she wrote a fascinating book called Healed of Cancer. But see, what Dodie knew was she didn't have a faith problem. She had a hope problem. That she needed her hope built. And what I can say to some of you is that God's created you to be a person of hope. And there's so many people that show up to church and they're saying, oh, I wish I had stronger faith. And it's not your faith that's the issue. It's your hope that is the issue. Because if you have hope that tomorrow's going to be better than today, that the job's going to keep progressing, that your health is going to keep improving, that your marriage will get better, God has something for your faith to lay a hold of. And what God says to you is, I want to give you hope. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, may the God of all hope fill you. Romans chapter 4 verse 18, when there was no hope, God gave Abraham hope. And can I be passionate here and say for some of you, that's what God wants to do today. You came to church because church is where you go. 
But God wants to give you hope today. He wants to give you hope that tomorrow's going to be better than today, that the next day will be better because he created you to be a person of hope. Number two, hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. See, your heart was created to be filled with faith in God. And if you're not a Christian, can I tell you something? You're never going to be happy until your heart has faith in God. You can blame it on your mama that you were raised in church too often and you've run from church. You can blame it on your dad. You can say, hey, I've been at churches that were disappointments. Write it all down. But the one thing you were created to do was you were created to have faith in God. But God didn't just create you to have faith in him. He created your soul to be filled with hope towards him. And so God's sitting there. And so you read verses like in Psalm 42 and verse 11. It says there, David writing, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why is it every day when I get up, I just feel down? Why is it when I get up in the morning, I want to feel good, but I just feel bad? Why is it instead of being positive, I'm negative? Why is it that I tend to be drawn to the dark side? Why? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And then he gives the answer, hope thou in God. He says, you need to fill your soul with hope. But it's not a man, worldly hope. It's a God hope. And he says, let that hope begin. And he says, let that hope. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, hope is the anchor of your soul. That when the winds get really windy, the waves get really big, there's something that secures you, and that is having hope in him. If I could build a bridge... There's a man named Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. If you went to the Library of Congress, they would list the top-read books in the history of mankind based on as they have followed them through libraries all around the world. This book is usually in the top ten. If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's in the top ten most-read books every year. But this book is a real tough book because it deals with a moment in his life when he was taken to a Nazi concentration camp. See, he was Jewish. And as a Jewish person during World War II, he was found and they took him to a camp. When they took him to the camp, they let him off the train and there were two lines. There was the line that was going to go to the left, and if you went to the left, that was your last day. That means that the guards looked at you and said one or two things. You don't have a skill we need, or you don't have the strength we need. And you were immediately taken to the gas chamber. Or if you went to the right, they looked at you and said you had a skill set or you had strength. He had family members that were pointed to the left, and he knew he would never see them again. He was pointed to the right. But what Viktor Frankl had done was he had worked his whole life as a practicing psychologist on writing a manuscript about people behaviors. It was his pride and joy. He had poured his soul into it. He had poured every ounce of his energy into it. And it was the one thing he didn't want to lose. So what he did was he took that manuscript and he sewed it into his garments. He wanted to get it into the camp because he said, hey, I want this, I want to keep it, because it was everything that he had lived for. But when they walk him to the right, they walk him into a place, and there the guards are, and the guards look at each one of them and say, strip, take all your clothes off. It was at that point that he wasn't going to be able to handle or hide the manuscript. The manuscript falls to the floor. One of the guards comes by, picks it up, looks at it, just flings it. But to him, it was like his life being over. He now wishes, he literally says that he had gone to the left. He had gone to the gas chambers. 
He's totally demoralized. He has nothing in them. He wishes he was dead. And it's at that point that as he's stripped naked there and his manuscript is everywhere, the guards come behind him and, and with their rifles, they push him to a pile of clothes and say, put those on. But these clothes were not pristine. They were the clothes of previous inmates that had literally been worked to death. They were inmates that had died. So these clothes were soiled. They, they smelled. The stench was just great on them. So he picks one up and he puts it on. He said the aroma, the smell of it was just horrible. But they were all the same. There was one pocket that was built right here. And instinctively standing there, he put his hand in there. When he put his hand in there, he could feel something that was crumpled up. Just a little thing that was crumpled up in the pocket. And so his mind was intrigued. What is this? He pulls it out, and he opens it up, and it's just big enough that it only had two words. But because he was Jewish, he knew what it was from. It was the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that every Jewish boy is taught to pray every morning and every evening. It is based on three Old Testament verses. The first one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. Except it didn't have hero Israel, just had the two words, the Lord. That's all it had. He looks at this and he reads it, the Lord. He talks about, as he began to think about it, he said, the Lord. He says, I'm in a ch concentration camp, but I thought to myself, he's still the Lord. I may be facing death, but he's still the Lord. I may not get out of here, but he's still the Lord. And he kept seeing that over and over. And he talks about how in his heart it began to explode that he said he's the Lord. And he said hope began to fill him. And that hope began to work in him because in the middle of people dying, in the middle of death, God's still the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Every day you wake up and you have 66 books called the Bible. And if God can deliver someone with two words, how in the world could it be that we have Christians that have lost all hope? They've let COVID take away their hope. They've let politics take away their hope. They've let everything take away their hope. See, it doesn't matter what's happening naturally. He's still the Lord. He's the Lord in the midst of a bad marriage. He's the Lord in the midst of a bad doctor's report. He's the Lord in the midst of a bad month at your business. Here's the thing. What gives you hope isn't your marriage, isn't your business. It's not an organization it is the Lord. So, in your life, you have a choice. How are you going to live? God created you to be a person of hope. God wants to give you hope. He wants to fulfill Romans chapter 15, that God would fill you with hope. He wants to do for you what he did for Abraham, when there was no reason to hope, God gave him hope. I've done this a long time. Most of you do not have a faith problem. If you have a problem, you have a hope problem. And the more that you can begin to have your hope built up, the better your life's going to be. So number one, you were created to be a person of hope. Number two, hope does for your soul what faith does for your heart. Number three, hope changes your circumstance. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, very famous verse, it says this. It says, my thoughts for you are for good and not for evil. Oh, I'm not sure what God thinks about me. He thinks good things. Well, you know, he may not like me. No, he's thinking good things. 
God's thoughts for you are for good and not for evil. They're to give you a hope and to give you a future. Notice the progression. You have no future unless you have hope. To give you a hope and to give you a future. See, hope changes everything. That verse that is so famous, the thoughts that I have for you, to give you a hope and to give you a future. It wasn't written to Israel during good days. It was written during bad days. It was written when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. Israel had been totally destroyed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem had been totally devastated. And yet God looks at him and he says, the thoughts that I have for you are for good, to give you a hope and to give you a future. See, you're to live your life believing that tomorrow's going to be better than today. You're to live your life having expectation that whatever your circumstances are, they will improve. That's it. God wants to give you a hope. God wants to give you a future. Some of you, can I just say it as a pastor? You've lived your life, and you've let hopelessness become the norm. It's not that your life's been fair to you. Life's been unfair. But just because life's unfair, it doesn't mean God's unfair. So you've got to be able to have a hope. You've got to be able to see bigger. You've got to be able to see greater. You've got to be able to take a step. I had a dear friend. He's honestly probably the finest pastor I've ever known in my life. But his journey to faith was unlike any journey of faith that I had ever seen. Because he didn't come to faith in a church. He came to faith in a battlefield. See, he was a young lieutenant during the Vietnam War, and he was stationed on a fire base, which was a part of the strategy during Vietnam. That is, they created artillery centers that they called fire bases. You would leave patrols out to engage the enemy and then call in the artillery from the fire base. And they were all over Vietnam. He was stationed at one particular one, and as his job was to take patrols out, he had taken many patrols out, had gone out, engaged the enemy, called in the artillery, just like the military strategy was. Except one day when he took out his patrol, he misread the grid map. A grid map is just a series of numbers between mountains that identify them, and usually between the grid map, there are little trails there that are identified by littler numbers there, and as a result of that, he misread it. Now, the reason that was critical was that every patrol that went out either had the fire base on one side or it had a patrol on the other side, and that patrol had a fire base protecting it. So no one could be outflanked. They could never be attacked from, uh, from the sides. They had the fire base behind them. They knew the enemy was straight ahead of them, except that day he misread it, and he went down the wrong trail. When he went down the wrong trail, his patrol was flanked. It ensued a battle that is going to be costly. But they're going to fight their way out of it. Reinforcements are going to come and they're going to get them. But he tells about standing at the gate of the fire base. As he stood at the gate of the fire base, he literally watched as 20 body bags are being brought in. Young men who died because he misread the map. Imagine what that's like. Imagine what that seems like, that 20 men have died because you did something. He's devastated. But he's their commanding officer. Now he has to go to his little hut, which is nothing but a hole in the ground, and he has to write the letters to the family. So now he's got a right to that mom and dad, your son died. To that wife, your son died. To those kids, your dad died. He is beside himself. As he's beside himself, 
He writes the first one, and he's bawling, but he can hardly do it. He gets his second one. He writes it. He can't contain himself. He's got 18 more. The idea of writing 18 more families that their loved ones not coming home, it was beyond his capability. So he does the unspeakable. What he does is he takes a bottle of whiskey. He takes his gun and he goes outside the wire, the protective perimeter. And he goes to a different hill. Well, everyone knew if you went past the wire, you were dead. You weren't coming back. No one knew you were there. You weren't making it. But that was all right with him because he planned on taking his bottle, going to that hill, drinking what was in it, taking his gun, putting it in his mouth, and killing himself. He did not want to live with the regret and the shame of having caused 20 men's lives. So he goes out there. He's literally on a hill. No one's around him. No one knows that he's there. No one should be out there. And then all of a sudden, he starts drinking. He gets halfway down. He has the gun. He puts it in his mouth. As he puts it in his mouth, he's about to pull the trigger. And all of a sudden, he hears something, and it startles him. Because where he's at, he shouldn't hear anything. But he hears something. He looks around. There's nothing. There's no one. He thinks, well, my mind's just playing games with me. He begins to drink some more. He's getting towards the end of it. He puts the gun in his mouth again. He's going to pull the trigger. He hears it again, but it's a little louder. And he's thinking to himself, what in the world is this? Looks around, nobody, nothing. He does it the third time where he drinks the last little bit. He puts the gun. This is going to be it. But he hears it again, but it's even louder but this time he recognizes it. See, as a little boy, his parents would sometimes drop him off at grandma's house. And as a little bitty boy, she would take him and put, her, put him on her knee. And she had this big book that she read, which she didn't know at the time, but later discovered that it was the Bible. And she'd read it. And when she would read it, she'd pause and she'd sing a song. The song went like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He's literally on a hill that doesn't even have a number anymore And there he's hearing this song go over and over on the inside of him. It's at that moment that he begins to look up towards heaven and he says, God, if you're real, I've got to have you now. And he literally falls on his face and it was there he met God and got saved. Can I tell you something about your circumstances? Hope changes everything. Hope changes everything. Your life may be immensely bad. Your circumstances may be immensely tough. But God's hope can change everyone. Because in the way that God spoke to Israel and said, my thoughts of you are good to give you a hope and to give you a future the thoughts towards my friend in the middle of a battlefield whereas I've got hope for you even on what seems to be like the worst day you could ever live. Three things. You were created to be a person of hope. Two, hope will do for your soul. Hope will do for your soul what faith does for your heart. And hope changes everything. The fourth thing, your hope is bigger than this life. There's a verse that Christians love to quote. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 37. 
Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Oh, we love to do that, man. People run and shout, I'm more than a conqueror. They get their hanky, you know, run around with their hanky. I'm more than a conqueror. But most of them don't realize there's four comparisons that happen after that verse. And the first one is this. You're more than a conqueror in death and in life. That's intriguing. You know, I pastor people. I'm with people on their best day. I'm with people on their worst day. I've literally held the hand of 17 people when they took their last breath and went to heaven. Can I tell you something? On all of those cases, I felt sorry for them. But in a split second, they were feeling sorry for me. What I thought was their worst day, in a split second, they thought was their best day. See, we look at death from our standpoint, but he says from death to life. We would never write that verse that way. You know how we would write it? We're more than conquerors in life and death. But the reason God wrote it that way was because he was saying there's life after death. And some of you have never come to terms with that. It's one thing to have hope your job's going to work better. It's another thing to have hope your marriage will be better. But it's an entirely different thing to have the hope that when you take your last breath, you're about to experience the best life because you now have life with him unimpaired. So today, I want to pray that God will give you hope. Father, in the name of Jesus... I pray, Romans chapter 15, that the God of all hope would fill people with hope. People who've had the air knocked out of them, people who've given up on life because of a diagnosis, prognosis, because life hasn't been fair to them. I pray, Father, that you would give them hope. I pray in the way that you gave Abraham hope when there was no reason to have hope, and yet he had hope. I pray that you're doing that for people in this room. Let the hope of God fill them. Let the hope of God secure them. In the way that David said, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God. Give people your hope today, Lord, so that their lives will be lives not just of great faith, but their lives will be lives of great hope. Let that be true in Jesus' name. Let it be so. Before I close, I want to tell you a story. Jenny and I love vacationing in San Diego. That's our favorite spot. We had gone, and we were in San Diego, and we were supposed to be there a certain number of days, but I woke up one morning, and I said, Jenny, I believe God's nudging me. We've got to get back to Plano. She looked at me, and she said, Well, sweetheart, I trust you, whatever you feel. So I got an earlier flight, and we fly back to Plano. I'm in our car. We're on one of the freeways there, and I pick up my phone, and I call a man named David. I said, David, I just had you on my heart. I just wanted to check on you. He said, Pastor, I knew you were on vacation. I didn't want to bother you. He said, uh, but Karen, Karen was his wife. She had stage four colon cancer. He said, I just don't think she's going to make it just don't think she's going to make it through the day. I said, David, I'll get there as quick as I can. Drove straight to the hospital. I got there in time that David's uh, literally, if you're facing the bed, he's on the left-hand side. I go up the right-hand side. I grab Karen's hand. I grab David's hand, literally pray a prayer, and Karen closes her eyes and goes to be with Jesus. David's crying. He's just lost his wife. He should. But we begin to walk out because now we've got to tell the rest of the family. As we get to the door, before the door opened, he looked at me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Pastor, I just can't do this. I just can't do this. I'm thinking as a pastor, he's talking about the funeral. I said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. I've done it before. He said, I'm not talking about that. 
He said, I, I can't do it. Karen was our glue. See, when Karen died, they now have five kids under the age of 16. He's now a single dad. and He's got a four-year-old. He's got a six-year-old. He's got about a 10-year-old. He's got a 12-year-old, and he has a 15-year-old. He said, Karen was the one that kept our family going. I can't do this. I don't know how to be a mom and a dad to five kids. I said, David, I don't have an answer for you, but I just want to ask you to do this. You have a 40-minute drive up to where you work in a 40-minute. Turn off the radio and pray in the Spirit. Now, at our church, praying in the Spirit means this, that you've been filled with the Spirit and you've been given a heavenly prayer language. And that heavenly prayer language allows you to pray a perfect prayer. I said, you begin to pray all the way up there, and you pray back. I want you to jump ahead a year. I'm standing at the back door of the church. David comes up to me. He says, Pastor, do you know what today is? I smile at him. I said, it's been a year since Karen passed away. I said, David, I miss her. I know you miss her. But then he said, do you remember what you told me? And I recited to him exactly what I just recited to you. And he looked at me, he said, I've done that every day. And he says, I don't know how, but somehow God has held our family together and it's flourishing. And I said, David, you prayed the perfect prayer. Your toughest day, God gave you the perfect prayer to pray. Every one of you at some time are going to have your back against the wall. When you have your back against the wall, you're going to need everything God has not only to be someone who's saved, someone who's close to God, but someone who's filled with the Spirit by God. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one looking around, I want to ask you three questions. First question, do you have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about being a member of a church, my church, this church. I'm saying, do you know that when you take your last breath, like Karen, that you're going to heaven. And that when you go to heaven, when you close your eyes, if you don't know that, the Bible says these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. If you don't know that, I want to pray with you. Second thing, maybe you're a Christian, but are you close to him? Jesus doesn't come into your life to be a part of your life. Jesus comes into your life to be the center. And if he's not the center, today's the day. But if you can say yes to the first one, yes to the second one, have you ever been filled with the Spirit and received your heavenly prayer language? If you haven't, today's the day. So uh, heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one looking around. In any one of those three areas, you know that I'm talking to you, I want to pray with you. If you want to be a part of that prayer in any of those three areas, if you'd raise your hand wherever you're at. Anyone, I see that hand, 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 I see that hand. The only people I want looking at me are the ones that raise their hand, if you look at me. Jesus loves you so much. You've taken a step by raising your hand. But you're going to take another step by praying a prayer. Now, that prayer's not magical words. But according to Ephesians 2.8, God's going to give you faith, and that faith's going to change your life. Now, the prayer we're about to pray is going to do one of three things. If you don't know him, you're going to come to know him. If you're distant from him, you're going to get close to him. But if you raised your hand to be filled with the Spirit because you're already the first two, God's going to fill you and the pastor's going to give you a way for people to lay hands on you and to pray for you. If everyone will repeat after me, everyone in the room, whether you laid, uh, raised your hand or not, repeat after me. Heavenly Father, you said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth 
that Jesus is Lord, that I would be saved. Today I'm doing that. I believe with all my heart that you are my Lord. Therefore, I thank you for saving me and changing my life forever in Jesus' name. And today, I'm asking you to fill me with the Holy Spirit and to give me my heavenly prayer language. And I believe that when hands are laid on me, I will instantly receive my heavenly prayer language in Jesus' name. I believe that when hands are laid on me, I will instantly receive my heavenly prayer language in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's what's going to happen. Pastor Troy is going to tell you how to take that next step and how that's going to look and how it's going to happen here. That being said, let me tell you, I get to speak at the greatest churches across America. Troy and Penny are two of the most wonderful leaders you can ever have. I want you to know how proud I am of them and how proud I am of you that this church always makes heaven bigger and the kingdom of God better. Thank you for doing that. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we encourage you to spread the word. Share with your friends and family on social media and make sure you subscribe to hear a new message every week. Really love the message? Well, we want to hear from you. Make sure to leave us a review below. Want more Freedom House content? Follow us on Instagram at Freedom House and subscribe to Freedom House Church on YouTube. We hope you are equipped to experience all that God has for you this week, and we'll see you for our next Freedom House Church weekend message.